Good morning. Some of you may have noticed that it looks a little different up here. Um, I am not Pastor Tim. Uh, Tim and Lisa uh, took a few days off and went up north to visit with family, and uh, he asked me to, uh, to speak this morning. Uh, I'd like to start out, before we uh, dismiss the children, I'd like to just take a minute and um, uh, fill you in uh, what happened. Uh, our, our brother, Ron LaFoon, uh, yesterday took a fall uh, off a ladder and, uh, and did not land well. And uh, he was taken over to Antelope Valley Hospital, uh, where he is currently in ICU. Um, he has um, some significant injuries, but the, the most concerning right now is he has bleeding on the brain in, in several locations. Um, um, Rich just got a, a text message that uh, they're saying um, um, he will recover, but it's going to be a long recovery. Uh, so uh, I'd just like to take a minute, um, pray for Ron, uh, and pray for our time this morning. Father, thank you for the gathering of the saints. Thank you for the blessing that uh, comes with uh, being together uh, uh, under your um, uh, your covering, being in your word to sing praises to you, to worship you, to glorify you. Uh, that is an encouragement. Uh, would like to pray for our brother Ron uh, LaFoon, who was injured, and uh, uh, we know all things happen uh, in your will. Um, but uh, frequently it's not clear to us why. We ask for uh, healing and recovery for Ron. You can certainly heal him um, in a moment as you wish. You can uh, heal him through the wisdom and talents of his doctors. Uh, whatever is your uh, way, we ask that he be healed um, and uh, that uh, we continue to have an opportunity to be an encouragement to him. Give him healing, give him rest and comfort at this time um, that uh, he can recover and be with his wife, Rachel, and uh, uh, give her comfort, give her peace um, that, uh, that her beloved husband um, is, uh, is going to be well soon and uh, that you can just hold up both of them and carry them and love them and care for them uh, in the way that only you can. Um, Please give us the opportunities to minister into their lives. We pray this morning for the churches in our valley as your word is being preached from pulpits like this, uh, that uh, it will be a force in our valley. We pray for revival. We pray for um, uh, people to come to Christ, to your son, but uh, the ones that are here, that they are strengthened and are encouraged. Thank you for this day, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to go ahead and uh, excuse the children at this time uh, to Children's Church. Uh, just an opportunity for them to, uh, to learn and talk about God's Word um, in a more appropriate setting. Um, um, Kathy doesn't use the big words that I do, so <laughs> and probably speaks a little clearer. Uh, so this morning, we're looking at John chapter 21. Uh, not too far in the past, uh, Tim had finished the uh, book of Luke, and as you've seen from the announcements on the, the screen out back and in your bulletin, we're going to be starting in the book of Acts very soon. 
Um, last Sunday was Resurrection Sunday, and we talked about the, uh, the, the resurrection of our Lord. And I thought it would be interesting this morning to look at a moment kind of between these, between Luke, between the resurrection, but before we get into the book of Acts. So we're looking at this, this chapter, the last chapter in the, uh, in the Gospel of John. We're going to go through the whole chapter, but I'm going to focus particularly on the, the portion that uh, Paul read this morning. I just didn't want to burden him with reading the entire chapter all the way through. So, um, so if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and open it to John 21 and uh, follow along there. Uh, so it starts out um, saying Jesus reveals himself to the disciples, so we know what's going to happen, um, that um, uh, by the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. And it says that there were seven of them there, and it, it names some of them, two are anonymous, but uh, it says that they're going to go uh, fishing. Uh, so seven of the twelve are going to go fishing. Makes sense. Not all of them were fishermen. Uh, Levi was was a tax gatherer, so you, you didn't you don't want people who aren't fishermen on a fishing boat. They're just going to cause trouble. So uh, so it, for various reasons, some of them practically, seven of the disciples went fishing. Uh, I, I love uh, Peter's line. I love most of Peter's lines. Uh, you just get this image that he just kind of stood up out of a beat up old recliner and goes, "I'm going fishing." <laughs> and stormed out the door, and everybody else goes, um, okay, we're going to go with you. And they went out and, and got on the boat. This isn't a big deal. He's not rejecting the call. He's not turning back to his old way of life. It's been a few days. They're hungry. <laughs> They need something to eat. They need to make some money. They're fishermen. This is what they do to make a living. So uh, it's a very, there's a very practical reason why they would get up and go fishing, because that's what they knew. That's the type of work they knew to do. They didn't run away. They're in Galilee because Jesus told them to go to Galilee. Uh, the angel told Mary Magdalene in uh, Mark 16, 7, I will meet them at Galilee. So the disciples are being completely obedient. They're going to where Christ told them. But he didn't say, sit in a small room with no windows and wait for me. He said, just go. I'll, I'll meet you there. So they go, and they do what's natural. They go fishing. Um, so they fish all night. They don't catch anything. How many of us have been there? <laughs> <laughs> fished the entire night. They didn't catch a single thing. And, uh, and, and Jesus calls out to them. Jesus is, is on the shore. It says he's on the shore at daybreak. Uh, they would fish all night uh, because they would fish all night because then they would go to the market in the morning with the fresh fish they caught to sell. So uh, that's, that's just when they went fishing. And so there's a figure standing on the shore uh, about 100 yards away at daybreak. And he calls out, he says, children, do you have any fish? That's how the ESV puts it. It's, you really need to understand that it's being said in a, in a way that expects a negative response. You know, maybe better 
would be to say, children, you haven't caught any fish, have you? Um, it's phrased that way. Um, interestingly enough, uh, not catching any fish, uh, one commentator points it out that never in the Gospels did, do the disciples catch a fish without Jesus' help. <laughs> These guys are fishermen, but it never records them catching a fish unless Jesus provides for them in catching fish. Uh, so he calls them children. He says, children, do you have any fish? The NIV says friends. Friends, do you have any fish? Which I think is a poor uh, choice of uh, translation. The word in Greek is uh, paideon. paideon. Um, a D in Greek is kind of a D-T-H-ish sound. Um, and uh, it literally means children. So, so the ESV is better. Or even um, little children, kind of uh, not in an insulting way, but in an endearing way. Um, looking at commentators, uh, some felt that uh, uh, this was uh, like this, one likened it to the, the British use of the word lads, or friends, pals, guys, things like that, and then said, which is how the word is used in modern Greek today? He's wrong. I felt so good about that. I looked at this commentary, I go, he's wrong because I know the difference. I lived there. Our landlord called us Pazima, children. It was an endearing term. Interestingly enough, when I was living there alone before Kathy and I got married, he called me Dan. So when Kathy showed up, then we became Pazima. <laughs> so I, I think it was Kathy, not me, that he liked. Um, but that, is a, that was a common modern usage where they still use this word as a term of endearment, um, usually from older to younger, but, but not necessarily. So, um, so he's calling them this endearing term. And that's a little different. You don't, you don't use this type of term to strangers that you see fishing. <laughs> On, on the shore. Uh, so so there's, there's a little hint there. There's something special going on here. Uh, he says he stood on the shore, but they didn't know who he was. Now, we do have the story um, on the road to Emmaus where uh, uh, they did not recognize Jesus. And th there can certainly be the supernatural here, but I think there's practical reasons. Uh, number one, they didn't expect him there right then. Uh, this wasn't this wasn't an expected meeting place uh, with Jesus. Uh, second, it said it was daybreak. Light wasn't that good. There's not many streetlights around the Sea of Galilee in the first century. I don't know if you knew that. But uh, so, so the lighting would not be that great. And secondly, we find out they're 100 yards away. I can't recognize any of your faces at 100 yards away, particularly at daybreak. So it would not necessarily be apparent um, that uh, he's, uh, he is Jesus. Um, so then he says, cast a net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Um, I, if I said that to you, not only would it be arrogant, I'd probably be wrong. But uh, he doesn't say, try over, over here, you might have better luck. He's, he's not offering a suggestion. He's making a promise. And that's the difference. The difference in, in the way he presents it. He says, he says, try over there and you'll find something. 
It's not hopeful, it's a promise. Um, and when they obey him, in fact, there's a lot of fish. <laughs> they can't even haul it into the boat. There's so many fish in their net. But they were obedient, right? They, they did what he said. They didn't blow him off as some guy walking down the beach. What do you know? We're fishermen. Paul, his, or um, excuse me, Peter, his brother Andrew, John, and his brother James, they were professional fishermen. Some guy walking down the beach. Who's this guy? Why does he give me advice? But they took his advice, and they were, they were blessed more than you can imagine. Um, it says, John's the one who recognizes Jesus first. The, way, the sequence it's put is they, they hear him talk to them. They throw the net on the other side. As they're pulling up the net, John goes, ooh, that's got to be Jesus. <laughs> they, they, there, there's that awakening that this is Jesus. Um, and uh, I just get this feeling that um, if Peter was the first one to realize it, he would have just thrown himself into the sea. Peter would have gone, in his mind, mouth quiet, it's Jesus. And he'd jump in the ocean, swim away, and everybody's going, what's Peter doing? But we have John who declares it. He, he is a witness. He testifies that this is Jesus. So everybody knows. And then Peter throws himself into the sea and, and swims to shore, and everybody else is behind him dragging the boat with with the net in the water because they can't lift it up into the ship uh, to, uh, to bring it ashore. So when they get to shore, um, uh, Jesus is standing there and there's some fish on a little charcoal fire and there's bread. Uh, we don't know where all this came from, but it's there. Um, I don't like fish. I don't eat fish. I would eat this fish. <laughs> I would, I would eat this for breakfast. <laughs> um, it's just, it's cool. Um, and Jesus says, bring over some of the fish that you caught. So apparently, Peter runs back to the boat, soaking wet, grabs the net, and drags the net back up on shore by himself. There's a couple hundred pounds, maybe 300 pounds of fish, and he drags it up. And the miracle here is the net doesn't break. And that's got all this fish in it. It's being dragged across the ground, and the net doesn't break. And then we come to this. Uh, commentators got all frothy. It says there's 153 large fish. Oh, my goodness. Numerologists are just going nuts. You know, what does this mean, 153? There's a number here. Is this, is this the number of of languages, of people group that we need to reach to fulfill the kingdom? Is this how many millennia it's going to be until Christ's return? Do the first 153 converts to the church get a free toaster? You know, what, what does this number mean? And I did a lot of study on this, and I'm going to tell you today the meaning of this number of 153. So are you ready? 153 is the number of fish they caught. <laughs> it's how many fish they caught. John's a fisherman. Have you ever known a fisherman that did not tell you how many fish he caught? <laughs> 
I was this big. We were up in Mammoth Lakes. I limited out. This is back in the old days where it was 10 fish per day. I caught 10 trout in one day. I still tell that story. John caught 153 large fish. You better believe a fisherman is going to tell you how many fish he caught. But there's a, there's a, there's a more serious meaning here. Um, this shows that John is a witness to the event. John was there. Indications are John wrote his gospel later towards the end of the first century. So it's been 40, 50 years, and he still remembers how many fish that were there, how many fish they caught. And that is the testimony that John is an eyewitness to all of these events that we're going to talk about. Is 153 fish important? No. Is the fact that John was there and is testifying to what happened? Yes. That's the meaning of the 153 fish. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'll write a book. I don't know. Um, so then John closes out this section of the story, and he says, now this is the third time that Jesus revealed himself to the disciples after he was raised from dead. In verse 14. And we, and, and, Bible pickers immediately go, oh, because John himself reveals four different times that Jesus reveals himself. There's a mistake. No, John revealed him, Jesus revealed himself three times to the disciples. The other time was to Mary. So he's right. <laughs> Get over it. He's right. So, uh, but he ends the story with that. That, uh, that this was the third time that he's appeared to the disciples. So we can kind of get over the, the shock and awe and get down to business. So starting in verse 15, there's unfinished business. There's unfinished business with Peter. Peter denied Christ in a very special way. Three times on the night before the crucifixion, he denied knowing Jesus three times. Um, that's even more poignant because he said he would never deny Christ. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. You're going to deny me three times before the sun comes up tomorrow. That's how close this is. So there is this burden sitting on Peter. Um, up until this point, we have not heard Peter speak. Peter jumped out of the boat. I mean, we heard him say, I'm going fishing. But uh, as far as being around Jesus, he jumped out of the boat. He swam to shore. He ran back and got the fish. He came forward. But nothing is recorded of Peter saying anything up until this point. So Jesus turns to Peter. And Peter's always referred to as Peter or Simon Peter. But at this moment, Jesus, and Jesus was the one who gave him the name, Peter, Peter the rock that I'm going to build my church on. But here Jesus calls him by his former name, Simon, son of John. Simon, son of John's a fisherman. Simon Peter is a fisher of men. Jesus speaks to Peter by his former name because that's where he's, he's meeting a fisherman on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And, and he's kind of letting him know this is a reset moment. 
He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Unfortunately, John doesn't tell us which direction he pointed when he said these. It's kind of like you, you listen to a comedian, you know, on, a, on a, an audio, you know, whatever, and there's no visual. And he makes this great physical comedy, and everybody laughs. You don't get it because you didn't get to see them do it. Um, so we don't know what he means when he says, do you love me more than these? But we have some, some ideas. And there's many ways to look at that question. He says, do you love me more than the boat, the fish, the life of the fisherman? That makes sense because he addressed him as Simon, son of John, his, his fisherman name. Another way is, do you love me more than you love these other disciples? Am I greater to you, more precious to you, than these other disciples? And then the third one that I'd like you to consider, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? Do you love me more than James and John and Andrew and these others? Do you love me more than they love me? I'd like to dig a little bit into that. The, the Peter that we know is a, is a proud man. He's a boastful man. According to the other Gospels, um, uh, Peter boasted that although all the others would fall away, he would not. In John, and, and you really get the feeling that John and Peter are very good friends. They were business partners, but they loved each other. And John's kind of looking out for his friend. So he doesn't record that, uh, the boast that all the others fall away. But in, uh, in John 13, 37, he does record Peter's boast that he would lay his life down for Jesus. Um, so Peter's actions in swimming to shore, his hauling up the net by himself, reveals this same attitude, this attitude of jumping to the front of the line when it comes to Jesus being the biggest, being the loudest, being the most boastful, being first, and I think being proud. Jesus' question, if you take that context, it goes deeper than the issue of attachments. Are you attached to your boat? Are you attached to this life of fishing? Are you attached to these other disciples? He gets to the root of the question, namely, are you proud? Pride is a great sin. And I think Jesus is calling him on that sin. Does Peter love Christ or does Peter love his pride? Is his love for Jesus greater than all the others? When we say we love the Lord, is it truly because we love him or we're proud of being better than others who love Jesus less? Like the Pharisees, I am more holy than thou. I am closer to God than you are. And there's a pride in that that's not healthy. And I think maybe that's where Jesus is going with this. And, and I've, I'm going to develop this point, by the way, so hang on. <laughs> that Peter is still this Simon, the son of John, is a proud fisherman 
claiming celebrity status because he knows a guy who's famous who died for your sins. So we come to the, the, the big discussion. This is where everybody ends up in this passage uh, where he says, do you love me? So three times Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter replies, yes, I love you. So the first two times Jesus says, do you love me? He uses the Greek word agapeo. All three times that Peter replies, he uses the Greek word phileo. Jesus' last time when he says, do you love me, he uses phileo. And in the past, it's been common to show a great distinction between these two words. But in recent years, that, that attitude has changed, that idea has changed, that these are very close synonyms to each other. That's become the common idea. They're just the same word, just slightly different. Um, the older idea is that agapeo is the divine love and phileo is a lower human love. But that's really too simplistic of a definition. Um, both verbs are used for the love of the Father for the Son. John uses it, uses both of these terms in uh, uh, 335 and in 520. So you can't just say one is one, is one and the other is the other. Agapeo is used for false love. For example, the idea of love of this world. Paul uses it in 2 Timothy 4.10. So Paul's a good writer. He's a smart guy. He knows language. He does great presentations, but he used agapeo, talking about love for the world. So a simple distinction between these verbs isn't justified, but that doesn't mean that we go to the other end and say there's no distinction at all, because then that loses the difference. I think in this passage, there's a pattern with Jesus asking Peter twice whether he loves him, agapeo, and each time Peter responding that yes, he does love him, phileo. Then the third time Jesus switches to using Peter's word. That in itself suggests that there's a distinction going on here. Um, and since agapeo is used more often in John for God's love than phileo, it's likely that agapeo is chosen to be the higher meaning. Hang on, I'm not going full old school. Um, because the present context, the way this is written, supports that feeling because otherwise Peter would claim the higher meaning right at the very outset. If Jesus says, do you love me, agapeo? Peter goes, of course I love you, agapeo. Where are we? We're back to the old Peter. We're back to Peter saying, we're good. We're fine. I'm still your number one apostle. But he doesn't. Jesus says, do you agapeo? And Peter, and I imagine with his eyes looking down, says, I phileo. There's a submission there. There's a repentance there of Peter's pride. And I think that's the distinction we see. Otherwise, we end up in the position where when Jesus says phileo at the end, 
we have to struggle with, did Jesus lower his standards for Peter? I don't think so. I think what we have is twice Jesus said agapeo. Both times Peter said phileo. We get to the end and Jesus says, do you love me, phileo? He is acknowledging Peter's repentance. He's acknowledging Peter's brokenness. He's acknowledging that Peter understands what's going on. Um, a gentleman called John the Ladder, 6th century AD, uh, I'm sure you all remember him from our church history class, um, wrote a book called Ladder of Divine Ascent. And in that, he refers to joy-producing sorrow. And I think this is one of those moments. This is a moment of joy-producing joy producing sorrow. It's a, it's a repentance that allows you to experience God's love and God's salvation. Do we really experience God's love if we don't repent? If we just, no, look, I'm good. Do we really experience God's love in that? This is surgery, and it's painful surgery, but it's only painful in the present. Peter and us, without this surgery, ends up experiencing the tumor of pride for the rest of our lives. The tumor of self-will forever in our life because we don't submit and we don't say, I love you, phileo. So I think that's where it goes. Jesus is forgiving Peter, but he's allowing Peter to understand what that means. How do we forgive people? Someone comes to us, we ask forgiveness, ask for forgiveness. We say, oh, sure, dude, I forgive you. It's cool. It's fine. And we never speak to them again. We ignore them. We move away. We change our name and number. We do anything we can to not interact with that person ever again. Do we forgive them? Sure, we forgive them. We just don't trust them. We don't want them anywhere near us. Is that forgiveness? That's just separation. We stop fellowshipping with them. We stop working with them. We stop trusting them. That's not what Jesus does. Um, he says, Peter finally breaks. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And there's, there is that shift in the vocabulary where he says, you know everything. It says, Peter's heart was grieved. He had denied Christ three times, and three times now he has to, he is given the opportunity to say, yes, I love you. In this shift, this reference to knowing all things, it reflects a view that the Lord's more exalted. It suggests Peter's humility in what's going on. Peter's humility is getting deeper. He's becoming more sober-minded. He's becoming less self-willed. Peter is dying to self and finding that his confidence is only in the Lord. Peter truly loves Jesus. And I think this is his moment where he realizes that. So what does Jesus do? We forgive somebody. We delete them and block them in our phone. Jesus 
gives Peter a command. In 15, 16, and 17, he commands him to shepherd the flock. He uses feed the lambs, tend the sheep, feed the sheep. These are all functions of shepherding. Jesus doesn't put him on probation. Jesus doesn't say, yes, you're still an important part of the ministry. We want you out watching the parking lot. He, he doesn't push him off to the outskirts of the disciples. you got to sit in the last row or anything like that. He says, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then go to work. I've got a job for you, Peter. I told you about it a long time ago, months ago, when I said, you're the rock that I'm going to build my church on. That still holds. Jesus knew Peter was going to deny him. Jesus knew Peter needed to be restored. Jesus knew Peter was still the rock that he was going to build his church on. Peter repents, Jesus forgives, and then Jesus restores. He restores the ministry, but he also restores the relationship. We tend to get this idea when we read scripture that these are a bunch of people standing in robes. They don't actually face each other because all those mid-century paintings are them standing looking like this while the other person is looking this way. Um, so we get this stiffness, I think. This is a relationship. These, this is Jesus and Peter, and they love each other. And this is restoring that love, restoring that relationship. And in restoring that relationship, he's restoring him to the ministry. But he's also restoring the love they have for each other. The key qualification for this task of shepherding the flock is love for Jesus. And that's characterized by humility and dependence on God and an obedience to Christ. Um, Peter already had a devotion to Jesus, but he was still full of self. His, his self-will thrust him to the front of everything. He always had to be the one to speak first, to speak loudest, to make the boldest proclamations. Um, just a minute ago, in our story, he had to be the first one to get on shore. He had to be the one to grab the fish and bring, Jesus bring the fish. Fish. <laughs> and, and I think there's a, there's a moment, there's a beautiful breaking moment here where that Peter, the proudful Peter, dies to self. That proud attitude in a couple of weeks, in a few weeks, we're going to start with the church, the beginning of the church. Imagine what would happen to that church if Peter was still that self-willed, proud, self-confident man. What would that have done to the church? What would have happened to that first sermon on Pentecost? But Peter learned the lesson. We see it in his life. And in his first um, uh, letter in 1 Peter chapter 5, if you wanted to go flip over to that, I'm going to read that, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, 
not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That does not sound like the old Peter. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Close yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is Peter talking about being humble in ministry. And he's giving the same charge. Shepherd the flock. It's just a wonderful picture of this changed, repentant, restored Peter. Jesus had predicted Peter's uh, denials um, after Peter said he was willing to die for him. He says, I'm going to die with you. Uh, that's back in chapter 30, uh, back in chapter 13. And Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Here is that call to follow. After Peter professes his love, his obedient love, Jesus spells out the cost of that love. Um, he contrasts Peter's youth, um, his life up to that point, um, with what's going to be coming. Uh, in his youth, he was able to go wherever he wanted, do whatever he, he felt like doing. But when he's old, Jesus tells him, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will address you and lead you where you do not want to go. There's an explicit contrast here between Peter's life of self-will, of doing what is wants, and falling under the will of another, the will of Christ, but then also someone else is going to lead you where you want to go, where you don't want to go. Um, he submitted to Jesus, submitted to his will, and now Jesus said that that submission is going to include being taken where he does not go, want to go. Um, so John says that, that this, this kind of obscure saying uh, is an indication of the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Remember that last part, verse 19, glorify God. According to tradition, Peter was crucified in the mid-60s during the Neronian um, persecution, and he was crucified upside down. Uh, that is tradition. We don't have any evidence of that. But uh, that was in, uh, supposedly in the mid-60s AD. John wrote this later in the first century. So he knows what happens to Peter by the time he writes this. He's faithful to the re record what's being said, but then underneath it is to show how Peter's going to die. Because, in fact, by the time he wrote this, Peter had already died. Um, and, and generally, the idea of your hands being outstretched was that your hands are going to be outstretched and tied to a cross. Something he did not want to do, to be dressed, to be prepared for execution. Was John be, was, was Jesus being cruel by telling Peter that he's going to be a, a martyr? Is this his penance for denying Christ? We tend to, we tend to throw penance into forgiveness. Uh, I'll forgive you, but you're bringing pizza, right? Or something. We, we, we tack that little extra on the end of forgiveness to kind of sweeten the deal. Is this Jesus saying, sure, you're back in, but it's not going to end well? No, 
I think it's exactly the opposite of that. For Peter, this is a great encouragement. Understand, his greatest shame was denying Christ. Even in the moment, he said, he said he wept bitterly. He was ashamed of what happened. To be encouraged to know that he will live his life to the end in a manner that serves Christ and that glorifies God has to be a great encouragement. He's not going to deny Christ again. He's not going to fail his beloved Lord. That has to be a great encouragement. There's this glimpse of the end of his life, and it's going to be a faithful one. Having spelled all this out for Peter, Jesus in verse 19 says, follow me. It just kind of ends everything with follow me. Um, Peter has answered that same call. Jesus said, follow me, way back in Mark chapter 1, 16 and 17, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, where he was fishing, and Jesus walked by and says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So I had this freaky idea yesterday. Are they standing in the same spot? It's right by Peter's fishing boat. He, this is where he parks his boat. They're right there. They've walked a little farther away. They're in the same area, at the very least, where Jesus first called him and said, follow me. Where Simon, son of John, followed Christ. And now Simon, Peter, the rock that he's going to build his church on, he says, follow me. He understands more what it is, who Jesus is, and what following him entails. He's already been told what it's going to mean for him in the end. Um, but he receives this commission from the Lord for leadership in the church. This is a call to recommit himself. Has he been committed to Christ? Yes. Is this an opportunity to be recommitted to that? I believe so. Faith is a trait that needs to be exercised. When we understand new truths, or God gives us a new call, it's an opportunity to recommit ourselves. In a way, we recommit ourselves each time God asks us to obey him, to trust him, and to honor him. Will I follow Christ when he calls me to follow him right now? Am I going to follow Christ right now? Am I going to trust God right now? Each one of those is a recommitment of ourselves to God. Every decision we make is, will I follow Christ or not? And that's the opportunity to recommit. So verses 19 and 20 um, ends with uh, Jesus' uh, call and restoration of Peter and the simple command to follow me. Now, uh, in, in some of your Bibles, there's a, there's a break, there's a paragraph break, or they put in a little thing to say something that now we're talking about John or whatever. But it's best to look at verse 19 and verse 20 and flow them together. I know it's not good English, but it's good Greek. Um, it says, uh, uh, verse 20 starts with Peter turning around and seeing John following, but following them. But the word them isn't in there. 
a better way to, to read that was Jesus said, follow me, and Peter turned around and saw John following. So there's this example right behind him, right there, of someone following. That's also how we know John is an eyewitness, and everything that's being said is exactly the way it happened. John was that witness. Um, Peter, there's still, there's still Peter in there. There's still Simon, son of John, going on in there. So he immediately fumbles the moment, sort of, um, and he turns, he sees John, goes, so what about him? Yeah, I'm good, but what about him? <laughs> um, and and uh, Jesus tells Peter that if I want him to remain until I return, what is that to you? And then he re-hammers re home the point. You follow me. Don't worry about what I'm doing with somebody else. You follow me. He set his task before him, feed the sheep, tend the lambs, be the rock on which Christ would build his church. That was the, the restoration and the recommitment of Peter. And we're going to see this in the next few weeks as we go through Acts. I know it's going to mess up Tim horribly, but keep this in mind. Whenever you see Peter talking, remember this moment. And, and how that had to affect Peter, the apostle, as we come into Acts. Let's close in prayer. Father, we know that you ask us to commit ourselves to you and to recommit ourselves to you because we are of such short memory and attention span. Give us the strength to repent. Give us the desire to repent and be restored and to follow you and to commit our lives to you and recommit our lives to you over and over and keeping it fresh and new and wonderful in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.